Welcome to this week's edition of the Quiller Report in Weekly Review. Uh, this is the opportunity that we take to look at the top 10 articles that were chosen by our readers. Each week we uh, post about 56 or so articles and then we calculate at the end of the week how many have clicked on what and that's how the top 10 is made. So it's really the reader's choice uh, that comes on there and we uh, try and uh, figure out each week. I wonder what articles will be chosen the most and uh, sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't, but once the count is done and we have it. So a, uh, this is our opportunity in this podcast to just bring out some uh, pointers on this. The newsletter comes out on Tuesday with the top 10. Uh, if you do not receive it, uh, you can just go to theaquillareport.com and there will be a little box on the side on the edge that will you click it and just put in your email and uh, once a week you will get that in your inbox so even if you don't go every day at least once a week you'll be alerted to what the articles were so uh, paul harrell is in arkansas and i'm in uh, florida and we uh, have this opportunity to have this uh, podcast so welcome uh, to another week in weekly review Thank you, Dominic, sir. It is uh, always great to be here and look forward to going through this top 10 list. It definitely yep. is enticing. And, you know, yep. when you are going through your um, normal routines on your on your cell phone, let's say, and you're looking at uh, this new site and that new site, you got to remember the EquilaReport.com uh, and because there's going to be something new on there every day. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and start. We always start with number one and the number one article that was chosen by our readers uh, last week uh, that will be in the newsletter this week on Tuesday, the uh, March 30th, uh, is Homosexual Desire is Also a Sin. Uh, this is written by Dr. R. Scott Clark, who teaches historical theology at uh, Westminster Seminary in California, in the Escondido, San Diego area of California. And uh, he begins this article. It's really intriguing because it gives some uh, really interesting history and he starts out in 1973 in Report 42, a committee of the Christian Reformed Church, sometimes we just colloquially say the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, wrote, an important distinction that must be made is the difference between homosexuality as a condition of personal identity and homosexualism as explicit homosexual behavior. And on the basis of this distinction, the Christian Reformed Church adopted as a point of doctrine the morals that homosexual uh, desire is not sinful but homosexual practice is and this distinction novel in the history of reformed theology has become irreformable doc and irreformable doctrine uh, which successive synods have affirmed and it goes on to explain the nature of uh, this and the implication of this all the way back in 1973 uh, it was already emerging um, I can personally recall when this took place, I had uh, been at a seminary party about a year and thought that this was a uh, quite unique uh, step for one of our reformed churches to uh, to take. And by the way, it was also the same year that the Presbyterian Church in America was actually formally organized. That was December of 1973. So in this article, um, uh, Dr. Clark is just highlighting what took place and how the seeds of a distinction of uh, homosexuality, uh, whether desire, 
whether it's their latent or potential plus versus uh, homosexual practice was uh, being distinguished. Now, in our day, the, pro the parlance of today, we would probably call that what is known now in the parlance as side B. And side B basically says some of what we just uh, recorded and said, and you can read the article. Uh, then uh, side A means that the church has moved now from just uh, seeing this as uh, sinful that to actually as accepting even the practice of homosexuality as a part uh, as long as it's lived out in a covenantal uh, monogamous kind of way. And uh, so it's uh, sort of morphed over the uh, over the uh, 50 years since that time. And so they, just this historical analysis really is helpful. And so what uh, Dr. Clark is saying basically is no, homosexual desire is also sin. That means it is still sin. And he has as a tease line. There is a genuine doubt whether believers can condemn, can condemn homosexual acts, but at the same time affirm homosexual orientation and desire. This distinction is untenable, as uh, Dr. Clark deals with it in this uh, report. Uh, he also shows how uh, it is filtered into other parts of the church, and uh, by the mid-90s, there was quite a bit of disruption for a number of reasons, including the uh, movement towards recognize homosexuality in the Christian Reformed Church uh, so that there was some uh, leaving some congregations uh, that left and some ministers and others uh, to form the United Reformed Church or URC. So uh, this is a interesting historical event that uh, gives some indication as to where things can go. And someone has observed, it's not in this article, uh, but in articles that uh, we've uh, posted before, that every church in the last oh, 50 or more years that have adopted what is commonly called the side B, uh, which is sort of uh, homosexual light, I guess, uh, eventually moved and adopted hom uh, side A. And I don't think there's a single exception to that, if I recall the article back a few months ago that we read that in. So it's just something for us to be aware of. It gives us historical context. It gives us uh, some theological issues to deal with. And uh, so I'm, I, I believe that's the reason why readers turned to it and read it, because it is such an important uh, article that's dealing with what is very real in the life of the church today in America. Yeah, and again, you know, number one article uh, homosexual desire is also sin. This uh, this article certainly sparked a lot of thought, um, and, and it will in you too. I didn't really, uh, I had no idea about Report 42. Again, Report 42 is a report in 1973 from a committee of the Christian Reformed Church where they start to essentially, like you call it, you know, homosexual light. They They start to say, hey, look, there's a difference here. Uh, you could have homosexual desire, and it's not sinful, but homosexual practice is. It's the exact same thing that is, uh, you know, a lot of churches are dealing with now. But what I thought to myself, and this is just the skeptic in me, uh, if you skip down to the article uh, where it's entitled Report 42, A Turning Point, it says one of the several turning points in the trajectory of the Christian Reformed Church was Report 42. The conclusions of the report are familiar to those who know the Revoice movement and its allies. It concluded that a homosexual orientation may be immutable 
And one of the ways in which the New Testament differs from the Old Testament is that the New Testament makes a place for celibate, non-practicing homosexuals. So what the thought that sparked in me, Dominic, is, you know, with the revoice movement, it's I, I kind of have uh, just my, the thought process is, you know, this is something that has kind of sprung up out of just a, a, a natural uh, you know, things like the emotion of the day of the culture and, and that sort of thing. This is something that's organic, if you will. It's an organic problem. And now I'm just wondering how many people who are on the side beef of things when it comes to the revoice uh, have read Report 42 of the Christian Reformed Church. That's the skeptic in me. I'm thinking, how many people saw a model here? How many people who are who are on what I consider to be the wrong side, the unbiblical side, have have before this ever happened, before this ever came up, read Report 42 and saw a game plan as to how to change, uh, in this case, the PCA? That is what I was thinking with all of this. Yeah, and and it's uh, so in essence, what uh, we have is is that. Uh, History is uh, past history's prologue, uh, where whether someone was consciously saying this is a game plan that we will use to eventually accept homosexuality as uh, seen as norm, normative uh, and allowable in the life of the church. And you could be or a member, you could be an officer and so forth, uh, whether or not that was the actual game plan or not. It's uh, it did turn out to be the seed that grew into uh, uh, well, I would call it a weed, but, uh, but it was definitely the bore. It did bear fruit into that. And it did, uh, wind up having, uh, you know, effect, de uh, disruptive, upsetting, uh, matters in the life of the Christian reformed church as, as other churches also went through the same thing. But here you could see a beginning of that timeline. So we commend the article to you to read and to peruse and, uh, trust that, uh, the you you'll be uh, again small groups uh, talking with your yourself talking with your friends uh, your church Sunday school class small home group Bible studies and definitely the officers of your church to just begin to try and make some sense out of this whole thing so um, the we commend that to you homosexual desire is also sin uh, by Dr Clark the uh, second one. And number two is by Carl Truman, uh, and this is from an article he wrote in the First Things um, magazine, uh, many out of one with a question mark, uh, and he's reflecting on what Columbia University in New York City has announced uh, with regard to uh, graduation uh, services, uh, that it will be hosting multicultural graduation ceremonies this summer. Uh, this is yet another sign, he says, of our fragmented times. Uh, grad, uh, graduands uh, in the following categories will have their own ceremonies in addition to the one for the whole class. So these will be the various ones. Uh, native, uh, lavender, which is reflecting uh, LGBTQ+, plus. Uh, Asian, uh, first graduate from a family-slash-low-income household, Latin, uh, Latinx, and black and so if you want instead of going to graduate with your class that everyone has done up 
uh, your all the work re requisite for require uh, for graduation up to this point. Now <clears throat> you can go to one of these subsets. And so what um, Dr. Truman is asking in this is the fact that we've moved from uh, working for many years to take a fragmented society and try and bring it all together so that there wouldn't be any form of discrimination. And now it seems like we're purposely now moving out from the one. So instead of e pluribus unum, that is from the many, we become one. Now we are many out of the coming out of the one instead of being united uh, in the one uh, together. So that's uh, uh, it, it's really a challenge and interesting ways in which he uh, dresses uh, this matter. Uh, so the um, yeah, I think again, there's another indication that something is happening in the culture that instead of us working to say we're, we're the melting pot, we're really becoming separate pots in which we uh, cook our own uh, meal, if you would, <laughs> and not uh, come together. So it's th there's a disruption, a fragmentation that really is taking place. I thought you were going to go uh, when you talk about in the pot and the cooking our meal. I thought you were going with the frog and the and oh the yeah, cool frog water in the kettle. And, no, yeah. no, that's that's a, that, that's overused. overused. <laughs> it is overused. Um, but I but I will say this. Uh, you know, we're essentially talking about segregation. Segregation is now okay uh, according to the left in this country. Um, and you know, this may sound extreme, but I feel like segregation is extreme um this certainly makes it more likely that you're going to have a culture that's okay with putting people in camps you know i i, I don't know how you go I, that's not an extreme statement by the way this we're, we are now getting closer and closer to where that's no longer a leap it's just a step um because we are obsessed with seeing our differences and we have to take people and the left at their i mean the same people that are for this type of segregation are uh, also say, you know, terrible, terrible things, uh, you know, about terrible assumptions just based on the color of your skin. Um, they want to put all of societal's problems uh, or the fallen world's problems on this race or that race. It is absolutely uh, dangerous, and it just shows that this world is in need of the gospel message and the message of reconciliation. Right. And it uh, turns uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream into a nightmare because he did focus so much, especially because of the times in which he was speaking. Uh, I have a dream that uh, they will come with my children will grow up in a culture in which they will not, they'll be judged on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And now it's uh, not just the skin color, but it's also the uh, predilections that we have, the desires that we have in our lives to be broken up. And so the content of character, in fact, character is not even seen anymore. It's just uh, what we see in that fragmentation, uh, which, uh, you know, boils out of some other philosophical thoughts that uh, we've been dealing with in different articles and in our discussions here on the podcast. So anyway, that's uh, many out of one instead of one out of many uh, by Dr. Truman and uh, First Things. Uh, the third article is um, saying the the uh, is moving towards uh, wait a minute. Uh, 
lost my point here. Let me get it. Uh, <clears throat> is the strange gospel of mask, uh, masking and public policy. Uh, and this um, uh, article, this is by David Devel, D-E-A-V-E-L. And in it, <clears throat> he uh, says that the that what has taken place in our culture, and we've used this phraseology in our podcast here in the last number of weeks, uh, is that because of what the science says, as opposed to what the law actually says, and what uh, and did what the Lord says, uh, thus saith the Lord, uh, has taken such prominent role with regard because of COVID that we have this strange gospel that He calls it uh, that we're. Uh, the gospel masking as it relates especially to public policy. And so he uh, says um, in this one tease quote, the lesson of the great masking crusade is important. We need to admit now that forcing on proven divisive and ultimately fruitless policies on the population has been a mistake. Universal mask mandates have not made a difference in fighting COVID. Rather, they have divided our country, provided a surplus of uh, garbage, and caused some dental problems and infections. So he sort of pokes a little fun in that. And so he says, in one sense, in an admonishment, next time we have a challenge and somebody proposes mandating unproven measures as necessary to our earthly salvation— of course, he's bringing the salvation in because of the gospel concept. Let us reject this as a false gospel. So let's hopefully we will have learned our lessons well, uh, he says, and not be moved in such a, a strong and um, you know a passionate way uh, to create the uh, the problems that we have. And just before we came on air, uh, Paul Harrell and I were talking about. Uh, some of these things, and uh, I know there's a church consultant. I've been one of the things that I have gotten probably the most in this last year has been the stress, just the utter distraction, the uh, disruption that the concept of wearing masks have created in churches. Of course, we know it in, in culture in general, but even in the life of the church and. Um, it's just uh, something that, at least in this article, basically says, well, and ultimately it's another gospel, and we probably need to rethink uh, how we jump into listening to counsel and advice from outside again. Uh, and I, my sense is that if something critical, or at least some perceived to be critical, takes place again, I think we will find that they we're not going to jump on it and accept it at face value, <clears throat> and uh, we're not going to accept the high priests of that whatever the issue is uh, to dictate what the worship patterns and worship in the quotes, not just our actual Christian worship in church. I'm talking about just what it is that we look to and adore and raise our voices and praise to. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's not science. You know, we worship the one true holy God. uh, And you would, you know, think that that might not be the case based on, um, you know, the, the idea of science says this. And then, of course, well, who's the, who's the messenger for science? Well, these people that we can prove have lied to us a, m- a bunch of times. If, if you want to go look at the information, I think this article is spot on. You know, how do you uh, I've been saying for a while when the next crisis hits or we're told about the next crisis, will we uh, will our churches analyze the data differently? Will they 
approach this a little bit more cautiously, understanding what they've been given to steward, which is the worship of God, how God's people are going to gather. Um, you know, fundamentally with the mask thing, it is stressful because what you're doing is you're actually adding something as a requirement to worship God. Um, you're adding something that's not, can't be found in the scriptures, you know, to, to worship God. And so that, that is, uh, in hindsight, that's what has happened. And, you know, there's going to be some churches, like you said, Dominic, that are going to realize that we didn't do this right, we didn't handle this right. But there may be others, uh, as you look in the news with vaccines and papers and, you know, that we have uh, the administration planning, you know, potential like vaccine passports. Unfortunately, I, I know this is the case. There, I believe that there probably will be some churches that will will want to see papers of of their congregants. I, I I say that sounds nuts, but I mean, there's going to be somebody somewhere that says yes, yes, we want to make sure that you're vaccinated before you can come and worship with us. And uh, if that is that is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it is, and so it. Th- you know, this has been a learning curve. I think I've said it on this uh, program before, and I'll say it again. I know I sent it to the members of the church I have the privilege of preaching at, uh, that uh, we're going to learn over the next uh, year, the next couple of years, 10 years down the road, there's going to be a lot of things that God is going to let us see that is the outworking of his providence, in which what for whatever reason, however this thing starts, that you know he superintends over it because he is the sovereign God. Yes. And so nothing is from God's point of view, nothing happened by accident, and He's using it to disrupt uh, the world. It, and it's one of my favorite verses of this: how God chooses to work is from Haggai chapter two. And uh, how many people look to Haggai because they hardly know how to spell it, much less say it uh, in chapter two, verses six through nine, where it mentions that once more God will shake the heavens and the earth and the uh, wealth or the the people of all the nations will then come to me. And that, that's there's a whole contextual thing in uh, in redemptive history of how uh, Haggai is speaking of that. But the point is, is there's a shaking. And that means when something is shaken, you pay attention. Uh, if you've ever lived in a place where they have earthquakes or you get a lot of tornadoes or something that's really grand and just sort of rattles the cages and rafters and so forth, uh, God do, is doing a shaking. And the uh, so, uh, we, you know, we, we, we need to understand that th- there's a shaking in the church. And then, uh, by the way, Hebrews chapter 12 uh, quotes Haggai 2, uh, 6 through 9, and that's the only place... Haggai's quoted in the New Testament is in Hebrews 12, and there it's talking about, yes, once more God's going to shake, and those who stand on the firm foundation of the uh, kingdom of God will be in the unshakable foundation. They'll have an unshakable foundation, and those who aren't will have one that will crumble. And so it's a call to make sure that your feet are firmly planted on the firm foundation so that when the shaking takes place, that uh, there isn't any reason for us to uh, fall and uh, be uh, despairing. And I really believe that those believers who really are standing in Christ and the firm foundation of the authority of God's word uh, will be able to, with all of the misinterpretations and the wily ideas and wherever they may have come from, 
they they still stand firm and they'll be able to assess and to determine and discern uh, what God is doing through this to awaken uh, people in the church, first of all, to being more faithful to the truth and then in the world to realize that all of their hopes and dreams will just fall apart and go to dust. And they that's an opportunity for evangelism uh, to point them to the unshakable foundation. Amen. You're right. All right. That's my preaching. It's over now. I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. The strange gospel of masking and public policy. That was number three. So that shows that uh, the way that, um, so we, what we've had, look, number one was the whole layer of the human sexuality and how things are changing in terms of the norms. Number two was from, instead of from one, many, or from many, uh, many but out of the one, many are coming as opposed to many are coming together. And now this one with the masking, it's question of always a, a vertical authority thing is who sets the tone? So that's uh, really wonderful, uh, you know, something to look at. Well, number four takes us a little bit differently, but it's still something that touches on um, how the church may be perceived because of a shooting that took place. And we probably heard in the news about the Atlanta shooting uh, that um, when an individual uh, went into um, a uh, into a uh, brothel, basically a house of prostitution, and uh, began shooting uh, people, and it turns out that some of those prostitutes, or most of them, were Asian, and so they thought it was an anti-racial, uh, was a, a racial matter. It turns out that from all the what's coming out now, it that it wasn't, it was more of a problem of sexual addiction and the frustration that this 21-year-old uh, man was uh, going through. But that's still to be determined uh, completely. But here's the point, is that he had uh, been part of, a test, not only attended, but was a member of uh, a Southern Baptist church in uh, the one of the Atlanta suburbs, and uh, that he had made a claim to have walked the aisle, to confess Christ and trusted him, and that uh, somehow it didn't take it. So people were saying it's, you know, now we're attributing to that church and churches like it, things that they they do not claim to, um, they claim we don't teach those kinds of things, but there were things were being attributed. Because what we tend to do, in whenever something goes wrong, instead of saying that the individual who did it is the yes. guilty party. We try and associate with everything else, the environment he grew up in, the teachings or the the influences he had. And so this church in uh, the, one of the suburbs of uh, Crab Apple First Baptist Church, northern Atlanta proverb, uh, uh, suburbs, uh, wrote a letter just explaining to the world, no, that's not who we are. Uh, we've been things have been attributed to us that aren't true. Uh, and yes, this young man was a part of our ministry, but he didn't pick up any of these. We believe very solidly in the Ten Commandments, of which the Sixth Commandment is, you shall not uh, kill and uh, murder. And so, and we don't teach anything about other um, groups and races being less than who we are. Uh, we believe the gospel is for all. So in other words, they dealt with that. And so here's a, a letter from the church grieving uh, because they are also getting many calls and insulting things. And so people are actually doing to the church what they claiming this guy did, you know, to uh, these uh, women. 
that were shot indiscriminately. So it's um, it, it it just shows we just don't we never know who's sitting in the pew. We don't know what ministry effects may have. Um, and when something like this happens, usually the church is, you know, re- recognize something's not right. Uh, they'll take ownership of it. So they didn't say, oh, no, he never was here. Or he wasn't active. No, he was. And uh, but what he did, he did on his own. We He didn't get any of the inspiration from any of the messages from the pulpit or from Sunday school classes or Bible studies. Absolutely not. You know, uh, you said, you know, we don't you know, you, you can't control who's in who's in the pews and, and, and uh, or, you know, in a lot of respects. Uh, you, you know, what what if this guy was William Wilberforce or the equivalent of and had gone on to do something great, you know, like in the slave trade, you know, in, in the UK? Um, you know, I don't I don't think we'd be hearing much about that, you know, so you're not going to hear about the great successes that the ministry of the church has had. You're going to hear about tragedies like this one. And unfortunately, we have we live in a world, especially here in America, where there is such rampant anti-Christian bias that if something like this happens, it's it's going to be made, you know, a giant spectacle because people are very, very critical um and we do have you know this society you know the people that are in charge of the media and that sort of thing they very much very much anti-christian um exactly yeah yeah. and i think that we need to realize that in terms of how we tend to evaluate tragedies like this because well and, and, and i'll give you an example there was the there was the terrible tragedy where you had the uh white supremacist in south carolina that goes into i believe it was a methodist church uh, goes into the Methodist church and, and kills people on a Wednesday with Bible study. And then um, that town in South Carolina, uh, you know, they came together right in the aftermath of that. And of course, the media was talking about, you know, racism, racism, racism and, and everything else. But then when this guy was arraigned, OK, this was a couple of days after the incident. This guy was arraigned. Members of this church that were there when he they killed their family members and killed their, their, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, they forgave this man. They forgave him in the name of Jesus and told him that there was still hope for him, that he could turn to Christ and be forgiven of his sins, be forgiven of the heinous act that he did. Then there was an MSNBC reporter on that same day, that same coverage, that was brought to tears live on air because he had heard the crowd outside the courthouse during the arraignment, blacks, whites, everybody singing hymns, and he was moved to tears. And I, when I saw that happen, Dominic, I, this was back when I did a daily radio program. I saw that happen. And I said, wow, this story is going to go away real quick because this is now turned into a story of reconciliation. And it did. And you know what the, the, it changed to? They, they literally panned the cameras to the capital of South Carolina and said, you know, they're still flying a rebel flag or a Confederate battle flag. Um, and then they made the story about the Confederate battle flag and not about this amazing this amazing example that this church and this community set in tragedy, they focused it on Christ and the reconciliation of the gospel. And that doesn't sell and that doesn't get clicks on the internet, apparently. Well, you, and we should never expect that. Um, my One of my little uh, rubrics that I quote very frequently uh, when we people are getting upset about the world, he says, the non-Christian mind, unaided by the Holy Spirit, is incapable of understanding the providences of God. And so to expect that, no matter how clearly it is 
how clear it is to us, mm-hmm. it isn't clearing to the non-Christian mind because they don't have yet those redemptive uh, characteristics and uh, sort of like the 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 inputs, you know, the the software, so to speak, to be yes. able to understand. So we shouldn't be surprised that the non-Christians left of their own devices will act just like they are. That's who we are because we're all born in and with sin. And until Christ deals with us, we make the wrong, we make wrong decisions and we misinterpret uh, uh, the things and the acts of God and the redemption itself uh, until our hearts are uh, strangely warmed and we are converted uh, sort of like, you know, whether it's as dramatic as the Damascus Road experience of Paul, uh, he definitely was not the same Paul that uh, had to be let down over the wall in Damascus to escape because now he was on the hit list after he yeah. had come to uh, with his hit list uh, in Damascus to, to Damascus. So his life was uh, changed and uh, he gives us now the high ethic that we have so much in the scripture because God used him uh, and turned his whole perspective around because uh, the now he was in the Christian mind and therefore he could think God's thoughts after him. He could receive God's truth and revelation. And he saw uh, the place that Christ played in the whole, not only redemptive scene, but also in the whole of uh, of history itself. So, <clears throat> okay, well, that was um, number four. That number uh, five, make sure I got those numbers right. Uh, yeah, this is... Another one on COVID that basically tracks with the one about the masking and so forth uh, is, do COVID-19 restrictions serve the common good? Uh, this is an article by Stephen Summit, S-A-M-M-U-T. And uh, he basically says as a sort of a pull quote, uh, while this article could not realistically address exhaustively every impact uh, reported in the scientific literature or the media, it does highlight the necessity for a serious reevaluation of priorities by bishops, pastors, counselors, and administrators at every level of the more detrimental consequences of the measures taken to purportedly combat COVID-19. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, that's he just in that one sentence, which is a uh, takes up four lines here. Uh, he says the the you know, the the serious evaluation of that which was not very healthy and very good. Uh, it is, he goes on to say, hoped that this will lead to concerted effort to block and terminate the various inhuman measures, inhumane measures, replacing them with more common sense efforts that respect the true dignity of human person in the in its fullness and as a result truly serve the common good. So that's the reason he calls it, the title is Do uh, COVID-19 Restrictions Serve the Common Good? And obviously, from what you just heard me say, he uh, says emphatically, no. The steps taken to supposedly combat the spread of SARS-CoV-2 virus have been disproportional and harmful relative to what the disease has shown itself to be as evident at the various levels, including but not limited to the psychological, the physiological, psychological, and social levels. So the uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Samut um, is saying, folks, we misread the data. We jumped to conclusions 
things we assumed things not in evidence and when we finally did get the evidence we were so far down the road that nobody was willing to listen that the narrative had been so set that there was no way that we were going to uh, be able to get out of it and we just had to sort of work our way through it which is hopefully where we're coming through um, and so you know it's something for us to really again consider and that's the reason I, I I made my observation with the other article that if another crisis comparable to this one seems to arise allegedly arises it seems to arise right and <laughs> allegedly it rises then uh it there's going to be there will there will be more questioning uh data requested uh if you know science is science then you should be able to see it under the microscope or the telescope and uh be able to uh, categorize it make it empirical it's not something that's wispy it's either true or it isn't because you put it under the uh, scope and can uh, test, test it and uh, once we grab hold of it you know we will uh it, it will make a difference i was thinking of <clears throat> of the fact that i grew up in a time when uh, polio was uh quite the fearful thing especially for the young for young folks and i was in that category at the time and they finally came up with the soft vaccine uh, polio and now it's you know, given out regularly and um and so we've almost eradicated polio except in places where uh, they chose not to do it anymore or they maybe thought you know we had to herd immunity which didn't and all of a sudden it came we started coming back again now the but no but life was going on we didn't stop going to the park and playing baseball as young kids we didn't stop going to school because at that point instead of being the elderly that were the objects uh, seeming the subjects uh, uh, of polio it was the young people so you really had to be concerned about them and we didn't have social distancing washing of hands and things like that uh, we lived our lives and unfortunately some got polio how it was being transmitted was different the point is is there wasn't this universal panic uh and eventually um a cure was found it was administered and the matter has almost been eradicated uh, it's coming back only because some folks thought it was so eradicated they didn't have to you know submit to uh, vaccinations anymore so that's the the point is is that uh, I saw the effects of it. It was frightening. I'm glad the Lord preserved me from getting it. Uh, but uh, the there wasn't, uh, you know, cowering, hiding, uh, masking, washing hands, social distancing, yeah. not going to school and the like. That's a great perspective. And I, I'm assuming that the vaccine you got for polio, you didn't have to get one every year. <laughs> no. Oh, no. So or or a couple, you know. That's my question. My, my biggest question is, you know, for stuff like polio, we've got this historical context. We've got this data. Vaccines, I thought, used to be things that lasted for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And now it's a, you know, it's an every year thing, whether it's the flu or now they're saying that's what the, the COVID's going to be. This is a quote from the article. Let me read you this. Forget about my opinions. Measures taken to minimize the spread. Starting in early 2020, the World Health Organization and most governments across the world implemented a series of measures touted without any real scientific or other evidence to help reduce the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. 
These included lockdowns, also known as stay-at-home orders, that shut down schools, workplaces, economies, and nations, quarantine, social distancing, and compulsory mask wearing. However, the hallmark characteristic of how authorities at all levels have handled this disease can only be described as confusing, contradictory, and as evidence continues to accumulate, clearly inhumane. This article is a must-read Especially if you need something to send your, um, I don't know, your friend, your coworker who is still buying into the hype or might just be, quite frankly, terrified. I mean, if you really buy into what the, the, the authorities and the media tell you and you, you just assume that they all have your best interests at heart all the time, then you'd be pretty scared individual right now. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and and that's what I'm saying is the. The, the assumptions were made. And by the way, this, people have begun to do the analysis beyond just the scientific. Uh, and that is that the, the, the and some of the theoretical, theological constructs that are coming out basically are saying that we are so afraid to die that we uh, and we've been really living in a fairly healthy society, at least in the U.S., even with all the sickness that we do have uh, around us that um, the whole idea of not being able to be healthy and the idea of facing death is so overwhelming that we're doing everything to avoid it. And so there is that, uh, you know, drive. Now, if that's the case for true believers, while we're not going around looking for death, we have the assurance that uh, God said, you know, Jesus says to us, uh, and it's in the context of his own leaving that he says, uh, you know, uh, do not be afraid afraid um, that my peace I've, you know, I've given you, you know, enjoy living that peace and don't don't live in a, a fretful life uh, as if this is the end. This is just a part of the journey into an existence with uh, God and, and fully in his presence. So my peace I give to you. And so we, we need to, uh, you know, hear that um, more. But as well but anyway they, they you're absolutely right when you said of these 10 articles in terms of just the amount of information that you'll ponder you in one reading you won't be able to absorb it all uh, i think it you'll find it really uh, helpful uh, this is definitely one for uh, personal reflection uh, small group discussion uh, to be done without uh, screaming yelling just this is uh, that we need to stop that part of our antagonism and lifestyle and just focus more on uh, really, uh, you know, using our discernment, using our minds well and understanding. In fact, like I said, the pull quote that I gave uh, really calls on us to do that. We need dispassionate opportunities for reflection that I think would be really helpful. Uh, to us. So this article, uh, do COVID-19 restrictions serve the common good? The answer that uh, Dr. Summit gives is no, but he doesn't just say no in a churlish way. He lays out uh, and makes a good case that we need to at least be aware. Of. And he's not, it's not a knee jerk kind of thing either, uh, where we're operating with um, in ignorance just because it doesn't feel it, or I don't trust the, 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 uh, you know, the system we've been fooled once before and so forth. No, he, he really brings out the details that will be helpful. So we commend it to you when you get the uh, article. Of course, it's up there right now if you just want to stick the title. 
on the EquilaReport.com, and it'll pop up in the search engine. Okay, well, let's see. Now we start the second half here with the number six. Uh, this is by Gene Veith. Um, in the difference between progressives and conservatives. And now that one was sort of a, a challenging one. <laughs> uh, Gene Veith is uh, a sort of social scientist, uh, a social thinker. Uh, he's a professor. He's uh, got a, his credentials are really uh, good. He used to write quite a bit with for World Magazine, and uh, so he he just has a uh, and a clear writer as well. I always appreciate articles that uh, da, da, Mr. Beath writes. And uh, says liberals believe that individuals can do a little and that solving the problems requires changing the systems, whereas conservatives believe that to solve the problems, even the systems mean uh, meaning means changing the people who are caught up in them. So basically, it's sort of the glo- the uh, the tribe versus the individual, uh, the systems being just change once the one size fits all will will solve the problem for everyone. And that's he's arguing against that uh, kind of um, that uh, that that approach to our thinking. And too often we we want to make, you know, one size fits all uh, come uh, you know, make itself work and is just not going to do so. So um, in this article, then we, uh, Dr. Veith helps us to sort of ask the right questions in terms of uh, how can we really solve problems? It's not an either or ultimately, it is a both and, and we need to, uh, you know, study uh, that, the you know, be a little bit more perceptive, realize that different folks approach things in a different kind of way and not assume that if we can just do this and, and it's going to be the panacea that solves every problem. It isn't. So that's part of the what he's driving at uh, with regard to progressives and conservatives. Uh, what are some other differences between progressives and conservatives that you see? Well, maybe there are other things. So he even recognizes he didn't cover everything. Uh, he's just beginning the conversation, and we need to, um, you know, look at, uh, you know, the the options that are out there and realize there may be different approaches for different places. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it it definitely was uh, made me reevaluate. Uh, well, let me say this: it it you know, you always want to try to challenge what you believe your pre conceptions and that sort of thing so you know i mean it did that and didn't really change my mind <laughs> for me personally but yeah you know liberals she says tends to, uh, set to uh, tend to see problems this is a quote from the article in terms of systems whereas conservatives tend to see problems in terms of personal responsibility you know the the issue here though for me dominic is currently the progressives are wanting to just their 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 problem with the system is to destroy it yeah uh, and so I, I'm not necessarily interested in, uh, you know, in, in trying to compromise. Well, let's just let's partially destroy it. You know what I mean? That's kind of where I landed on it. Well, and I think the, that's exactly right. And the, when when you're when the answer is to take the revolutionary approach is what they're saying here. If we tear down the system, you better have something to replace it. Uh, now, in another context, there's a, a book read 
many years ago, as I, I also teach uh, philosophy of ministry, you know, the church philosophy and, and so forth, of how to develop a framework for the ministry of the local church. And the um, one of the books that I uh, had read in preparation for that had a, rev- a statement of how do you go about changing a church? Uh, because each church, just like any human organization, develops an internal culture. We have our personal habits and human organizations have corporate habits, but they're they're still habits. And so when they become ingrained, just like our personal habits are ingrained, that's the reason they're difficult to change. Is if they're bad habits, especially, we want to keep good habits. But if we get bad ones, we, we really, 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 really want to change. But it's hard because they're so deeply ingrained. Yeah. So the same thing can happen, that they're very positive, upbeat, uh, helpful habits that we develop corporately. And then there's some that we wish we could get rid of. Well, the answer for progressives and in, in this uh, book, which was written back in the 80s, 90s, was to say they bring about changes to be the revolutionary. And so he described the revolutionary with a number of things. But one of them was he doesn't like the system. He it's not all broken, but it's broken enough that it needs to go. And so this guy's uh, the revolutionary lobs Molotov cocktails into the church, not literally into the building, but into the the system of the church and uh, blows it up. And then when it's all done and he's sort of won, he doesn't know what to do. (laughs) <laughs> and so the revolutionary pastor, as he called him, uh, was, is, was you know, knew, knew how to tear it down, but didn't know how to build it back up because he didn't really have a plan. And whatever little plan he had was uh, just a replacing of one system for another system. And usually the one he wanted was really just as bad as what he claimed uh, was bad already. So that's I always remember that knowledge. You can come in and it's easy to take it away. And I think we said in a couple of weeks, over a couple of weeks ago, with the taking down of statues and so forth, whenever <coughs> we rub down the um, and destroy our uh, our images, uh, statues and portraits and history books and and uh, the cultural events that uh, carry the baggage of history, our culture, uh, that what we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of of any uh, knowing what happened in the past and so the old saw those who uh do not read history do not aware of it are doomed to repeat the same mistakes yeah. and that's exactly true and we uh, so we need to know and as i think i said last week in our podcast i said the one of the beauties uh, that gives credibility to the bible is that God leaves all the junk in there, all the bad things that happened. He refers to the bad people that he did, and he still used them in one form or other. Yes, you know, and he didn't he didn't whitewash, he didn't clothe, he didn't uh, uh, try and sanitize, he didn't try and uh, elevate them. Oh yeah, they did a few things, but blah 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 blah. You know, you talk wait wait no. So he, he, he you know you talk about um, you know we celebrate or the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, Jacob, well, he got his name because he was a scoundrel. He even in utero was trying to become number one. And he became that way. So his name, from being born, you know, he's a scoundrel. And he he's going to be a wily and uh, deceitful. And that's what he does. And he stole his 
brother's uh, uh, heritage rights as the elder brother and so forth. And it wasn't until uh, God confronted him at Peniel in Genesis 32 that he is confronted with his life and his ways and his ethic. And uh, and God wouldn't let loose of him and he wouldn't let loose of God there for a while until God touched the sinew of his thigh. And from that point on, he walked with a limp. And that limp reminded him that he battled with God. He contended with him. Of course, his name was changed to Israel, which is the one who contended with God and continued to live. And he said, I saw the face of God. Peniel is Hebrew for God, face. And he was changed. But but the God doesn't just start the story about Jacob when he gets everything straight. Yeah, that's right. He started it when he was a scoundrel. And we hear about this and we say, how could he do that? How could he do that? Because God takes the, the mess of our lives and history. And so when we look back into our redemptive history and we say, where did our roots come from? It comes from Jacob and others uh, that mm. were messed up. And God uh, uses even the wrath of men to praise him, as the psalmist says. Mm. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> okay. I'm on my, <laughs> my soapbox, here, aren't I? All right. So the... Um, Difference between progressives and um, conservatives from Gene Veith. Uh, number uh, seven, let's see, seven, eight, nine, ten, yes, is now changes. This dramatic shift, so don't get uh, going to uh, get in, put your neck brace on for this. Uh, my favorite <laughs> Puritan authors. Wow, how's that one? How, when was the last time you read a good Puritan? Um, we uh, speak about them, but uh, this article by... Um, uh, let's see, who is this? By? Yeah, Keith Matheson. And he says, here are the five men that I've really found uh, helpful uh, who were all counted in that camp known as the Puritans. And just real, real, real quick, uh, the term Puritan began to be used during the reign of Elizabeth I. She reigned in England uh, from 1558 till 1603, and she never married. And during her period of time, she was, uh, you know, had a good long reign, had a great deal of influence. We call it the Elizabethan period. That's uh, when Shakespeare was writing his plays and other things were happening like that. And so um, there was a group uh, within the Church of England. We call it the Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church if you're in the U.S., and they uh, felt that the church had begun moving away from just expository preaching, just opening up the scriptures and letting teaching from the pulpit and other times uh, what the word had to say. And so they wanted to bring purity back into church because they felt that, that we had gotten off with excesses of, of uh, form without substance and things like that. And so the a Puritan movement was really a movement, a revival movement, if you would, a preaching movement within the Church of England uh, during that period of time uh, of Elizabeth. Now, when others who were not part of the Church of England came along and they said, I, we like that that emphasis in ministry and that theology and, and that focus on preaching and teaching, uh, then they 
took to themselves the title Puritan or the moniker Puritan as well. And so then it began to be broadened out from uh, just the people who were in the Church of England. So just as a little background, so we understand the, the helpful, it helps to understand where the term came from. So he mentions, uh, Matheson does, uh, these uh, five favorite Puritans, uh, some of them, probably most of them, uh, would not be familiar. Probably one of them will be familiar to us. Uh, Thomas Brooks is one. Uh, he's best known, he says, for his works, The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. By the way, the Puritans believed, they, as rational as they were, they believed in a real spiritual evil force, a dark force uh, that it, did, it dwelt in the heavenly realms and did all sorts of things that were against God and the truth and brought mayhem uh, through his temptations and wiliness into the church. And uh, his whole agenda was to overthrow God and thwart uh, God's uh, plan. And so here is Brooks speaking about precious remedies, important remedies against Satan's devices. And he mentions that Thomas Watson one of the great books that he wrote, A Body of Divinity on the Ten Commandments. He read another uh, expository uh, work on the Lord's Prayer, and that was so helpful. The Richard Sibbs, A Bruised Reed, and in that uh, bruised reed, he talks about how God, first of all, why he bruises the reed, and then how he uses a bruised reed uh, to accomplish uh, his purposes. And uh, then Stephen Charnock, who uh, probably in his writing about the, uh, the ma it's a massive book on the existence and the attributes of God, uh, it's something you really have to wade through. I remember reading it early, early on in my ministry, and it took me a while because it, it was so intense, and uh, but I really appreciated the depth of the way and the seriousness with which Charnock uh, took that approach. And the one that is known more commonly is Matthew Henry, uh, because he is put together in that one volume, uh, his words, and he is so pastoral and so caring, um, and that he uh, his work uh, still continues more uh, universally than the other four that have been mentioned. But Matheson really helps us to you know look by the way just notice what we're doing here we're going back into history yes and the, we're learning from it what if someone had said i don't like these guys and they burned their books and banned them and put them made them a part of cancel culture and we would never have a catalog of their the riches of what they produced and that would have been an awful uh, shame that well, and I'm, I'm sure so, somewhere somebody wants to burn these books, too. That's what's so sad. Um, I, I'm just going to read the Thomas Brooks quote because this spoke a, a lot to me, especially just in our, you know, really everyday Christian life, but also what's what we're going through right now just as a as a country. Uh, Thomas Brooks, quote, we have all things in Christ. Christ is all things to a Christian. If we are sick, Jesus is a physician. If we thirst, Jesus is a fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in need of help, Jesus is mighty to save. If we fear death, Jesus is life. If we are in darkness, Jesus is light. If we are weak, 
Jesus is strength. If we are in poverty, Jesus is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. The soul cannot say, this I would have and that I would have, but having Jesus, he has all he needs, eminently, perfectly, eternally, end quote. Mm, beautifully, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that will warm the cockles of your heart. I don't know what the cockles of our heart are, but I know it'll be they'll be warmed. Yes. If we <laughs> we do that. So five fear, uh, favorite Puritans uh, given to us by Keith Matheson. Appreciate that so much. And uh, that's something that we can enjoy and luxurate in. Uh, number uh, eight is uh, one that's written by uh, Peter Witkowski about Lloyd-Jones, referring to Martin Lloyd-Jones, cultural problems and the power of the gospel. Uh, Here he's saying that the man who preached Christ while bombs fell out of the sky because he lived and stayed in London during the bombing, the German bombing of uh, London. Uh, So while bombs fell out of the sky, would never abandon the gospel and devote his pulpit to the advancement of social causes. The scriptures spoke to the needs of every age. And so uh, basically uh, the focus here is what what was it that made Lloyd-Jones such a great preacher? By the way, he loved the Puritans as well. He quoted them uh, all the time. He read them uh, irregularly. Uh, He made it... One quote here that I really think stands out well is throughout his career, Lloyd-Jones faced calls to address the political and social concerns of his day, which encompassed everything from birth control to nuclear warfare. And though he carried around many firm political opinions within the folds of his black suits, he resolutely refused to share his political political perspective on Sunday because he thought the fundamental problem of facing humanity was sin and not sins. And so he goes on to say what that is. The doctor understood, and by the doctor is a he was a physician and then became a minister. And so sometimes he's lovingly called the doctor, understood the term sin to encompass the effects of the fall, men and women's separation from God and the ensuing pollution of their souls. Uh, Though restrained somewhat by God's common grace, unredeemed men and women walked about the world in spiritual ignorance, lacking the ability to understand God and to do good. Because Because of the fall, men and women then committed sins, plural, particular expressions of evil in time and space. So they were born in and with sin. So sin itself is what corrupts us all because we're born in that corruption. And then we manifest it and prove it in the particular and the specifics that we do expressing evils. So he said what the gospel does, it fixes the sin issue because that is what's based and why we have the sins issue. And if we solve the sin one, we begin to move into solving the sins, the plural one. Yeah, you know, it's exactly right. And it's um, <clears throat> it was good. It really independently of this, I just want to say I was watching uh, really the first time ever I was watching. I watched an interview this week with uh, Lloyd Jones, an old one, uh, I think, from back in the 60s or 70s. And uh, it was really, really good. Uh, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, and also, you know, you've said this many times before, just the ebbs and flows that the 
churches go through, you know, throughout history. And if you go listen to some of the problems that, you know, and the questions that he was being asked by the interviewer there, they're very similar to what we're facing now. And so it's uh, very encouraging uh, to know that we're still here for by the grace of God and and uh, his church, the Jesus's church continues to grow and continues to uh, be alive and accomplish the purposes that God has for us. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, read that um, that article by Lloyd Jones and how he handles that. I think it'll help to put some of the concerns that we have for uh, society, uh, for the culture into a perspective of uh uh, everyone is affected by sin, and we all commit sins that also have um, awful effects in culture and that we need to repair the heart. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do common grace things, because as the article says, Lloyd-Jones believed that. But if we fix that and never fixed the heart issue, then uh, people get feel start acting good and morally, but have no relationship with Christ and then have a Christless eternity. Okay, number nine is John Newton, who is the author of uh, Amazing Grace. And as maybe some of us know, that, that he was a slave trader before he came to Christ. So he lived in the uh, sort of the raunchiness, the ugliness and the darkness and bleakness of um, dealing in human uh, slave trading. Uh, the writer Mike Leake um, in this John Newton and Christian and the Christian slave traders um, says that he, uh, you know, just speaks about how Newton, uh, when he first became a believer after coming out of God, had to really pull him. That's the reason he always counted it as amazing grace uh, that he didn't immediately turn away from slavery. He eventually did and worked very much with uh, William Wilberforce and being a force for uh, uh, the abolition of slavery in England and the British Empire uh, when that vote was taken by Parliament, and I think it was about 1808, which preceded a lot of what we did, what happened in our country much later on. But anyway, can uh, Leek ask, can one profess faith in Jesus Christ, hold a theological position or engage in activity which is inconsistent with Christian redemption? I believe that Newton would say, absolutely, Christians often hold theological positions and engage in activity uh, inconsistent with redemption. But the answer takes a darker turn when we ask whether or not a Christian can knowingly and willfully hold positions and engage in activity they are known to uh, that are known to be inconsistent with redemption. Newton would have far more concern with the latter over the former. And I believe that he we should as well. So Newton eventually came to run, realize that the latter, which was that once you re, could become a Christian, you become aware of what the scripture teaches, how we have to then work hard to bring our dispositions or our personally held views into line with scripture and its teaching and authority. And uh, he went through this in his own from the time he came into the faith as he wrestled with things he continued doing things that he had been doing before and came more and more to realize that conformity with christ was the paramount uh, goal and that's where his life began to change and how he engaged in culture his own life and culture then in a different way yeah i mean the uh 
the role of conscience. There's a quote in here that's really good about, uh, he says, the experience of past years has taught me to distinguish between ignorance and disobedience. The Lord is gracious to the weakness of his people. Many involuntary mistakes will not interrupt their communion with him. He pities their infirmity and teaches them to do better. But if they dispute his known will and act against the dictates of conscience, they will surely suffer for it. This will weaken their hands and bring distress into their hearts. Willful sin sadly perplexes and retards our progress. May the Lord keep us from it. It raises a dark cloud and hides the sun of righteousness from our view. And till he is pleased uh, freely to shine forth again, we can do nothing. And for this, perhaps he will make us wait and cry out often. How long, O Lord, how long? Really good stuff. It is. So that's our ninth. And number 10 brings us to, and I, believe, I can't believe it took us uh uh, nine uh, the 10th article before we got to critical race theory you know because it's sin uh-huh. like in the last number of months it was front and center and so the number 10 uh, article written is called subversive education north carolina's largest school district launches a compa- campaign against quote whiteness in educational spaces and this is written by christopher rufo in the uh, city journal Uh, Last year, he says, the Wake County uh, Public School System, which serves the greater Raleigh, North Carolina area, held an equity-themed teachers' conference with sessions on whiteness, microaggressions, racial mapping, and disrupting texts, encouraging educators to form, quote, equity teams in schools and push the new party line, which is anti-racism. So then instead of calling someone racist, you, what you call yourself is an anti-racist uh, phrase that um, uh, is being um, uh, highlighted by um, Kendi Ebrium. Uh, and he's the one pr- promoting this concept of anti-racism, uh, using that term. The February 2020 conference attended by more than 200 North Carolina public school teachers began with a land acknowledgement, a ritual recognition suggesting that white North Carolinians are colonizers on stolen Native American land. Next, the superintendent of the Wake County School Systems introduced the day's program and shuffled teachers to breakout sessions across eight rooms. Freelance reporter A.P. Dillon obtained the documents from the sessions through public records. At first session, whiteness in ed spaces, educational spaces, School administrators provided two handouts on the, quote, norms of whiteness. These documents claim that white cultural values include denial, fear, blame, control, punishment, scarcity, and one-dimensional thinking. According to notes from the session, the teachers argued that whiteness perpetuates the system of injustice and that the district's whitewashed curriculum was doing real harm to our students and educators. The group encouraged white teachers to, quote, challenge the dominant uh, ideology of whiteness and disrupt white culture in the classroom through a series of transformational interventions. And it goes on uh, like that to say what was uh, the these seminars were basically introducing the whole notion of critical race theory into the uh, educational system. Remember last week we had an article that uh, there's as two and two 
two and two, uh, two plus two equals five. And it says, uh, because if we don't allow for that, then we're buying into a rational whiteness culture. And so you have to allow for not le less than exactitude with reference to something like two plus two is four. So in the same concept, it's coming in in other kinds of ways uh, that were handled um, in through this seminar that this article that uh, Christopher um, Rufo um, uh, reports on in the uh, city journal. I know this is the last one we're covering, but this this right here just says it all. According to the article, parents, according to the teachers, should be considered an impediment to social justice. One teacher asked, how do you deal with parent pushback? The answer was clear. Ignore parental concerns and push the ideology of anti-racism directly to students. OK, so uh, it, this is a tough one. But I mean, if you have a biblical worldview and this is coming to your children's school, um, the time now is to pray about what to do uh, and what your responsibility is, uh, you know, p possibly considering, you know, pulling them out. I, I you know, this kind of goes back to. Uh, and I know it's like, what's your options? You know, a lot of people ha are most people two income households. But this kind of goes back to that earlier article, Dominic, about, you know, the difference between progressives and conservatives and that sort of thing. And listen, I know I want to find common ground with people I disagree with. Who doesn't, especially from a biblical worldview, who doesn't want to do that? But, I, you know, but th this goes with our education system and everything else. It's this is the I, I keep wrestling with this. I don't know if I'm interested in coming to the table to discuss with you the size of government, how big the welfare state should be, what we should teach our kids. When you think I'm the bad guy because I want little girls to go into girls' restrooms and little boys to go into boys' restrooms, I don't really – I'm not interested in debating you know, these other issues when, when you believe that about me and you think there's something wrong with me because – because I believe that a, a biological man is a biological man. That's kind of where we are right now. And what that is doing is it's going to force people with a biblical worldview uh, to withdraw in a lot of respects. Because you're, 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 you're really not giving anybody a choice at this point. That's right. Uh, and that, that this is where we are called, as I've uh, sort of developed this phrase over the last month and sort of using it quite a bit, uh, is – Christians live in the belly of the beast all the time. We never can get out of it. And that is we're living in the context of a very dark world because it's made up of people like us who are sinners, but not yet redeemed. And so remember the non-Christian mind, unaided by the Holy Spirit, is incapable of thinking yes. the things of God. And uh, so we are called to be bright, shining lights against the dark background that uh, is uh, culture itself. And uh, so God doesn't pluck us out. So we need to find ways of engaging uh, and doing so with the gospel, because that's the weaponry that we're given to us. We're given, the only offensive weapon that is given to us as part of the armor is the sword, and the sword is called the word of God. And that means we need to know the word and how to use it uh, apologetically with, uh, with uh, defense, with clarity, uh, so that we can, that word will pierce through the darkness and brokenness of hearts uh, in order to draw them to the light of Christ, who's the only one who can give them hope. And so instead of us running, although we, for our kids' sake, sometimes we need to uh, protect them in terms of uh, worldview, uh, but uh, the, the 
we're called to live in the world and not see everything political because if we come the uh, as paul says in ephesians 6 the 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 warfare is not against flesh and blood it's not other people so much as it is principalities and powers and spiritual uh, forces in the spiritual darkness in the heavenly realms so that's where the real issue is and the way we tack that is by uh, being wise as serpents, being uh, being uh, acting with discernment, uh, you know, clarity and uh, the wisdom the Scripture gives, as we are able to speak into and cut through the um, hardness that the culture sets up. So that's not an easy task, but that's why it's called warfare, yeah. and it's not just personal. It's also a cosmic warfare in which all of us, as the corporate body of Christ, are engaged, but we don't attack with this uh, with physical swords. We attack with the the word the the word the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we have to learn how to use it effectively uh, and well. To uh, as Paul says in Second Corinthians ten, t- take every thought captive in obedience, and it's the thought that's called into obedience to Christ. Yep. Okay, well, uh, Paul, we've come to another 10, all really engaging. And you can see that uh, for those of you who uh, are going to get your newsletter to tomorrow or get, get read during this week, uh, hopefully you will use it well. So this has been the Aquila Report and Weekly Review, an opportunity for us to, uh, to explain the or tease out, to talk about, uh, give you a hint of what the top 10 are that the readers of the Aquila Report have been looking at or clicking on the most. And you can see that they're thoughtful, incisive uh, articles that uh, challenge us, that educate us, encourage us, uh, maybe dis- discourage us sometimes, but hopefully will be helpful. So um, if you haven't done it already, go to theaquilareport.com and click on catch uh, subscribe to the newsletter. The list is kept only for us, so you receive the newsletter. And uh, we do not sell it or give it to anybody else. So we're glad you were with us today. And trust that uh, the Lord will walk with you and that you'll continue to read the Aquila Report and that you will engage in this world as uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Paul, for all Thank that you. you do on this.